0: All right, later today, you will be able to see over three hours of the finest commercials. (laughs) It is Super Bowl Sunday. So let's talk about Burger King. (laughs) Within the last two years, Burger King has unveiled a new slogan You rule. One fast food journalist wrote a couple years ago describing her first experience hearing this at a local restaurant. Welcome to Burger King, you rule. She heard at the drive up. She admits, Yes, I was taken off guard by being told so definitively that I rule. Literally no one in my life is so quick to tell me I rule. Other happy employees said the same thing, that she ruled. But in the end, what did she think of the experience? She described it in two words. It ruled. So the campaign seems to be working, maybe, or for now at least. But one aspect of this marketing has not been widely recognized. You rule... Implies, I think, that you're the king. That I'm the king. You rule. But I thought Burger King was the king. I thought they were the king of burgers, not me. And in fact, Burger King commercials used to have this guy who was called the king, running around and doing things. But now they're telling me that I rule, that I'm the king, apparently. Go back 20 years, 20 years, 2004, they had a different marketing message. This was, no kidding, the Burger King Bill of Rights. You have the right to have things your way. You have the right to hold the pickles. You have the right to hold the lettuce. Now, that might sound like you rule, but actually... It was a Bill of Rights. It was given to citizens. It was very American, very constitutional. Here are your rights. But now, we're told that you rule. Sounds like you're the king. That's quite a promotion. And all of this, why? To get access to your wallet. Now, I don't mean to take this example too seriously. I mean, I will enjoy watching commercials today, too. Uh, but it is a sign of the times, probably, and, and certainly a sign of the messaging that bombards us, not only from TV commercials, but from all kinds of advertisements that we hear. We are surrounded by corporations, by marketing. I don't mean to disparage the whole field of marketing here, not at all. But sooner or later, you will be told that you rule. You will be told that... You deserve things. You deserve a break today. They will flatter you. They will promise to make you cool. If only you buy their products. They will pander to you. They can feed our sense of entitlement. And again, to get to your wallet. Now we laugh and I laugh because uh, I think, you know what, I think pretty highly of myself. I can see through this at least 90%, 95% of the time. That's a Hall of Fame batting average. That's pretty good there. But we see so many commercials, so many advertisements. I sometimes have this fear. What about that 5%, 10% I'm not seeing through? Is it affecting me? Is it is it changing me? Is it giving me a sense of entitlement? Let me give you an example. I could be dead wrong on this one, but I'll give it to you anyway. I've heard twice recently of a couple teenagers looking for their first job, receiving a job offer, and turning it down. And I ask why, and it's, well, they didn't pay enough money. And I hear that, I'm like, oh, just take it. It's your first job. Get some experience working. You know, this will be good for you. Don't worry about it being as much money, you know. Maybe that's an example of being told So many things that we deserve, whether commercials or songs or movies. I don't know. Now, maybe I can see that one because I'm old and that deals with teenagers. What ones maybe can I not see that's pandering to me? Let's talk about Jesus. Jesus loved people. He encouraged people. But he did not pander to people. He did not flatter them. He did not feed their sense of entitlement. And one reason is this. He wasn't after their wallet. I mean, it was much more than that. He was after our entire lives. Our hearts, souls, minds, bodies our futures, our present to be so radically transformed that he would call it being born again. And if that's what you're going after someone's entire life, not just their wallet, then the superficiality of pandering, of flattery won't help. In fact, it will work against, it would have worked against Jesus's goals of being born again and unto salvation and being so transformed. All that sets up for me my, my first slide here, which is this series and today's sermon. This series is we have seen his glory. We're talking about glory from the gospel of John. And those words, we have seen his glory, is from John 1 verse 14. And today we will look for that word glory in John 5 to to answer this question. What did Jesus think about people like us? What did Jesus think about people like us? That might seem unrelated to glory, but we will see it today. So this is a good time to open our Bibles to John chapter 5. If you're using one of our Bibles here that we have provided, the Black Bibles, we're turning to page 890, 890, and two verses, we'll use the word glory, John 5, 41, and John 5, 44, so listen for the word Glory. I'm not going to walk through this passage verse by verse, which is great. I love to do that. But this series, I'm focusing on glory. So most of my comments are going to be geared towards that. These two verses, what is he teaching us about glory? And what implicitly he thinks about people like us. So let me start reading at verse 30. John 5, starting at verse 30. What I now read are the words of the living God. This is Jesus speaking. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just. Because I seek not my own will. But the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself. My testimony is not deemed true. There is another who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, John the Baptist, and he has borne witness to the truth, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. And you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name. You will receive him. How can you believe. When you receive glory. From one another. And do not seek the glory. That comes from the only God. Do not think that I will accuse you. To the father. There is one who accuses you. Moses. On whom you have your. Hopes set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Keep your Bible open. We'll come back to earlier verses in that passage. But the two passages, oh, well, here's the first one. That use the word glory, John five forty one, Jesus says, "I do not receive glory from people." What does he mean by that? In this case, he means praise by glory. The word glory we're really looking at in depth here in this series, and sometimes, like last time I preached, it's related to weightiness. The actual Hebrew word glory, kavod, weighty. Something not hollow, not superficial, not fake, not fraudulent. The real deal, solid, weighty. Other times you see glory represented with pure, blinding light. A picture of glory. Here, the word glory is the Greek word doxa, and it does mean sometimes praise. And so what Jesus is really saying here, if I could put it in words, I don't need anyone's praise or testimony on my behalf. I don't need it. Now, by the way, I just said Hebrew, Greek, and I just want to encourage you, you don't need to know that. How do I know I do not receive glory from people basically means... I don't need anyone's praise or testimony on behalf, my behalf. I tell you, it's basically due to context. And if you read the Bible enough, you'll get a feel of what certain sentences sentences mean that maybe aren't clear to you just by the context. And we're going to get to the context here in a moment. But this is really important when Jesus says, I do not receive glory from people because you know what we're trying to do this year? We're trying to say glory to God, glory be to God. We are glorifying him. We are giving him glory. And here's Jesus saying, "Uh, I don't receive glory from people. I hope we're not doing the wrong thing to give him the incarnate God glory that we're not to give him glory in the sense of praise. So Jesus, help us out here. What do you mean? And here's where the context helps. Go back to verse 33. Same passage. I already read these two verses. You sent to John, John the Baptist. Remember that a few weeks ago. Where the leaders come from Jerusalem and they interrogate John the Baptist. Who are you? Are you the Christ? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? Remember we went through those options. And he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. Now, I love that verse. John the Baptist testified to Jesus. Do you remember when John the Baptist says things like this? Listen. The next guy, the one who follows me, I'm not worthy to untie his sandals, to touch his dirty feet, his dirty footwear, He's so far above me, I'm not worthy to do that. Listen, I baptize with water for the forgiveness of sins. But it's just water. This guy will baptize with the Holy Spirit of God. Now that is bearing witness. And Christ says he bore witness. John the Baptist, the guy that basically everyone except some of the leaders recognized as a true prophet. This is what John was saying about Jesus. But then Jesus said, as I just read, very similar to verse 41, he said, not that the testimony that I receive is from man. And you hear what Jesus is saying. He's saying basically, listen, I don't need anybody to vouch for me. No human. I don't need a human to say that I am true. In fact, Jesus will say in chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That is, when you're getting to the highest authoritative source of truth, it's God. It's Jesus, incarnate God. He doesn't need some human to vouch for him. I mean, if you just think about that, what human is so trustworthy, so authoritative that That Jesus would say, oh, did you hear? He said, I'm true. Therefore, I'm vouched for. Therefore, we've built my credibility. Jesus doesn't need it. You know, in theology, we say something about Scripture and God's Word. It's self-authenticating. Self-authenticating. We don't need some other smart person to authenticate it to prove that it's true. It's actually self-authenticating because you can't get any higher in the truth hierarchy, if you will, authoritative truth, then God and his word and what he says. Yet that's not all Jesus says. As I just read, he then chases that with, but I say these things so that you may be safe. Jesus tips his hand there, shows you his cards. What is he up to? He wants people to be saved. I'm going to come back to that. And so as people recognize John the Baptist as the real deal, a prophet, Jesus says, I don't need him to vouch for me, but I do point to him and his testimony that you may be saved. So this is at a very practical level that we can understand. I bet if you're a believer in Christ, it's because somebody shared the gospel with you. And someone basically said, you can trust Jesus. He tells the truth. He is the truth. It might have been your mom. It might have been a teacher. It might have been a coworker. Somebody told you that. And you believed it. But I bet you don't think that coworker or your mom or whatever is the source of all truth and the authoritative person who had to vouch for Jesus. Strictly speaking, that's not necessary. But Jesus knows. That's how we come to faith. And he sends out evangelists and missionaries. So practically speaking, he speaks and points to John the Baptist's testimony. So back to our verse. I do not receive glory from people. I don't need anyone's praise or testimony on my behalf, anyone to vouch for me. Yet I do point to it that you may be saved. Now that begs this question. Jesus, what's wrong with John the Baptist's testimony or the testimony of anybody? Why don't you want or why don't you need someone to vouch for you? What, what exactly? I've kind of explained it, but he'll say it a different way in John 2. Let me read these verses from John 2 to you. This is after he turns water into wine and then says something about building the temple in three days. After that, the gospel writer John says something that we might not know. Now, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. Yay! When they saw the signs he was doing, yay, they believed in his name. This is great. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. Because he knew all people. And needed no one to bear witness about Man, listen to this. For he himself knew what was in a man. For he himself knew what was in a man. Man here, the generic term for all people. My, one of my first Bibles I wrote in the uh, margin here next to, for he knew what was in a man. I wrote next to it. This ain't a compliment, folks. And this is about his believers. It says, some believed in him, but Jesus did not entrust himself to them. Interesting. Even to those who believed in him. All right, this makes me think of college. I was taught in college to share the four spiritual laws. A young believer. How many of you know the four spiritual laws? Okay. So, first law. God loves you and? Has a wonderful plan for your life. And then it goes on to law number two, which is about sin. But that first one, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. You know what we do when we hear that in our flesh? We hear, God loves me? That's great. I have a wonderful plan for his life. If he loves me, then I'm going to ask him to do some things. I'm going to use that as leverage. This is why Jesus could not entrust himself to any man, even to his disciples. When he started to really reveal, as the cross was getting closer, what was going to happen, they freaked out. Right? No, 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 you're not going to be betrayed and crucified. He could not entrust himself fully. Because they would have a plan for him. Peter had a plan for him. In fact... In the very next chapter, chapter six, after our passage today, after the feeding of the 5,000, what does Jesus do after the feeding of the 5,000? He basically has to escape, withdraw from the crowd. Why? Because we're told they wanted to make him king by force. In other words, ironically, they were saying, you rule and we got a plan for your rule, Go kick out the Romans. Other people will have plans for Jesus. One guy, I I can't blame this guy. He calls out, Jesus, tell my brother to split the inheritance with me. If you're the Messiah, do something just. Please help me. And isn't that the way we are? That if we want someone to be king, it's because we have a plan for them. Plan for their wallet. Or plan for them to kick out the Romans or whatever. Jesus knows this about us. What does Jesus think of people like us? You're hearing the answer. He could not entrust himself even to believers. He did not need anyone to vouch for him. Not even John the Baptist. This is why he did not pander. He did not flatter He knew what was in people, people like us. Jesus will say things like, if you, though you are evil, though you are evil, he will say things like, no one is good except God alone. This is why you don't hear some pop self-help from Jesus. You can do it. You deserve this. Just believe in yourself. Just follow your own heart. He never says anything like that. Now, I don't want to be misunderstood here because there are places in life where we better be saying encouraging words like that to the next generation or to each other to say things like, you can do this. If you work hard, I see potential in you. There is a place to do that. And if we don't, we're missing out on something and maybe it's something in the arts. Maybe it's something academically. Maybe it's something vocationally. We do have potential and that's why we talk that way of you can do this and so forth. But Jesus isn't talking about those things, developing our skills in the arts or in the workplace or whatever. You know what Jesus is talking about? Really, really big things we can't do. Like save ourselves. Like, prove ourselves to be righteous enough that God will accept us to earn eternal life, to be accepted into the kingdom of God, to be born again. You can't do that. And Jesus won't pander to us or flatter us that we can do such big, big things. But as I'll return to it later, there's still hope. Because what does he say? I say these things that you may be saved. But let's go to the second time we heard the word glory. This was verse 44. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Again, what's the synonym for glory here? Praise. Praise. So let me read it again with the word praise, which some translations do in the English. They just put the word praise there. How can you believe when you receive praise from one another and you do not seek the praise that comes from the only God? Notice what he says. How can you believe? You ever wonder if you're a believer in Christ, you love the Lord, you're like, why doesn't everybody believe in Jesus? How could they not? He's so attractive. He's so truthful, so powerful, so winsome, so... He changed my life. Doesn't everyone see this? Uh, I'd be self-destructive if it weren't for him. Not that life is perfect. Far from it. But you might have that testimony. You're bursting at the seams. Why would anybody not believe in Jesus? And sometimes Jesus answers that question. And here's one verse where he does. And he doesn't just say why people don't believe. He says why they... Can't believe. How can someone believe in Jesus if they receive praise from one another and don't seek the praise that comes from God? Now think about that. It's a profound explanation. Very simple though. In other words, if you just care what people around you think and you don't care what God thinks, you're not going to... Be able to believe in Jesus. If you just accept the praise of your peers, of your co-workers, your colleagues. Because why? Because you want to advance in your career. And they hold the keys. Your boss. Or if you're in school. Peer pressure. Just just the acceptance of my social group. If that's number one, you can see what Jesus is saying is so simple yet so profound then you can't believe in Jesus because you already out of the gate don't really care what God thinks. His praise, you're not going after. Isn't this kind of surprising what Jesus is basically saying? Is you need to seek glory. No, Jesus, that sounds selfish. Well, notice how he expresses it. You've got to seek the right kind of glory from the right person, and it's from God. Seek his praise. If you don't, and you're only seeking the affirmations of those in your social circles, you can't believe in me. You can't be interested in truth. Let's say you do this, though. It's like, Jesus, all right, I see what you're saying. I need to seek the praise that comes from the only true God. All right, I care what God thinks. More than anyone. If you walk down that road. Take his invitation here. Here's what will happen. First. And this is the hard part. You will find that you're not worthy of his praise. All right. You're going to find that you fall short. And you might not have known this. You might say, well, I make mistakes. We've talked about. Yeah, I just kind of trivialize it. Yeah, I make mistakes. But if you take seriously what God says about what we should do, how we should not live, should live, these commands and the way Jesus told us to live in love for one another and, and this and that, oh, you're going to find what Paul says in Romans 3 is true sooner or later. For all have fallen short of the glory of God. This, this stinks. It's not a fun moment. But It's true. But that opens you up for the next part, which is great. I say these things that you might be saved, Jesus says. And this opens you up to understand the gospel finally. Why Jesus came to save sinners, not just the religious elite, not the angels who don't need to be saved, people like us. Or maybe people you think don't even deserve because they're worse than you, Hitler, you know, or something, any kind of sin. I mean, any kind of person or sinner who comes to Christ can be forgiven. And that's what the cross is about. We're going to celebrate Jesus's death here as he told us to. That sounds weird to celebrate a death or at least remember it. Do this in remembrance of me. This is my body. This is my blood. And that's what he meant by, I say this, that you might be saved. His mission was about salvation. For those who know they fall short of the glory of God. That's good news. That's great news. But you see Jesus' point. It starts with you saying something that might sound counterintuitive. But God, I'm seeking your praise. In other words, the praise that comes from you for doing the right thing. Not just what my, not what my peers think, I have to kind of set that aside. What do you say, Lord? And that can lead to salvation. We're going to turn to the supper here, so let me tie this together for that. Oh, this is scary to say to hear. He knew what was in a man. He knew what's in people. One reason that's scary that I have not said is if you ever find someone like that, that their youthful idealism has vanished and life has hit them hard as person after person has let them down and they know what is in a man, in a human. I sometimes wonder if this is how Mark Twain ended his life, it seems to me. Bit by reality, I know what's in a man. So often that comes with a cynicism, even a hatred of humanity. And you see none of of that in Jesus. He had something in him that says, I'm not going to be fooled. I know I cannot entrust myself to mankind, to anyone. I know what's in them. No one is good but God alone. I know it. But I came to save them, not to hate them. Not to judge them in his first coming, but to save them. That's the kind of love that actually comports with realism, that, that is really seeing us who for we are, but not hating us for it. Jesus does not descend into bitterness, thank God, as people let him down. He understands. Did you know one of the first accusations against Christians that we have in the written record? Is that we are haters of humanity. This comes from such an interesting source. It's from the Roman historian Tacitus writing about 100 years after Jesus. And he's explaining what Nero did. Awful. Emperor Nero. Nero blamed Christians. And the first major persecution broke out in the 60s AD under Nero's rule. And we think. That's when both Paul and Peter are executed. Under this persecution. Nero would use Christians. As living torches to light up his gardens. Why? Tacitus tells us. Because Nero said, these people are the haters of humanity. And if you've ever been accused of that, hating, it hurts. You might wonder, how in the world did they come to this conclusion? Because I want to love people, even my enemies, in Christ's name. I don't do it perfectly, but how did they get this? And, And for Nero and for the Romans, it's, listen... You're telling everybody that there's something wrong in them. Sin, evil. And you're saying that the worship of the Roman gods doesn't fix it. You're threatening our empire. You're threatening our unity because you think there's something wrong with us and your God has the fix, huh? You hate us. You hate us. And it's great to be reminded at that point when you feel that pressure, too, to go back to Jesus and say, All right, he knew what was in my heart. He knew what was in a man's heart. He did not have any Pollyanna ish view of us. He knew the truth, but he did not hate us. He came to save us, even through the excruciating work of death on a cross, to, favor, to, to forgive our sins. And as much as he will be accused of hate, and we might too, for thinking lowly of us falling short of the glory of God, we know when Jesus tips his hand in John 5 and he shows you his cards and he says, I do this that you might be saved. He's telling us about his mission of love to sinners he could not fully trust, but he came to save. Let us prepare our hearts in a moment of prayer before we come to the table. And the elders can please come forward during the prayer. Oh, Father, we know that we are to seek the praise that comes from God, but then we know we're not worthy of it. But now we turn to the table of the one who is worthy of it, your son, who lived the perfect life. And died the sacrificial death in our place. And so, will you strengthen our faith? That we might see your love, we might see your salvation. For sinners like us. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.